I thought I would start by laying down some facts so that we don't get discouraged about our life. This is out of the Visuddhimagga. There are ten decades of decline of the body. This is all going in the direction of dying, but in more incremental ways. From one to ten, it's the baby. From ten to twenty, play and enjoyment. From twenty to thirty, beauty, attractiveness. From thirty to forty, strength. From forty to fifty, wisdom. From fifty to sixty, decline. (laughs) From sixty to seventy, stooping. From 70 to 80, bent over. From 80 to 90, decrepitude. (laughs) And from 90 to 100, lying down. When I was living in the monastery in England, we had a monk come to visit us, Cambodian monk. He was 114 years old. All the nuns gathered at Chithurst, Chitawiweka, That's where he was staying. And we were in the shrine room. This is about 28 years ago. He was going to give us a talk. So we sat very respectfully at his feet. He was a wizened, lovely old monk. He started to speak and he was talking very slowly. And suddenly he stopped talking. We were sitting and listening and his eyes were closed and we realized that he was asleep. (laughs) So we just sat there spellbound. After a few minutes, he woke up, and he continued talking exactly where he left off. It was really amazing. So a hundred is not just lying down. This is very important for everyday life. It's an extract from the Song of Enlightenment by Yung Chin Suan Chu, Tang Dynasty, 665 to 713. It says possibly by. Some of these things are difficult to document. When criticized by others, let them wrong you. When criticized by others, let them wrong you. They will tire themselves trying to burn the sky with a torch. That's such a beautiful metaphor. Usually when we're identified with this body-mind as self, solid, me, mine, we are so small and limited. But when we understand our true nature and we don't identify with any of it, neither the mental or the physical process, and we see it always in its changingness and its emptiness and its non-solidity, then we are vast, we are boundless, we're measureless. If somebody criticizes us, me or you, 
conventionally speaking, we use these pronouns. But not conventionally speaking, there's no one to refer to. So it's as if they're trying to put a torch to the sky. How could they possibly burn that which is boundless? How could a tiny flame burn the sky? We have to think or understand ourselves as so much bigger than this self-identity. When I hear abuse, it is like drinking ambrosia. This is the possibility. When I hear abuse, it's like drinking ambrosia, melted and suddenly one enters the inconceivable. We drink up this, we hear. It's hearing, hearing a sound. You're a good for nothing. You're useless, you're hopeless. And we hear that, ah, pleasing sound, or pure sound entering the hearing consciousness. We melt it and we enter the inconceivable it's almost as if there is no sound. It's just emptiness entering into emptiness, and there's no concept, there's nothing conceived, there's nothing created there, there's no self made out of that. So it goes nowhere, as if it's melted. If we regard criticism as merit, the critics will become reliable friends. What would happen if somebody criticized us and we said, thank you, my good friend? What would they do? That's the end of the story. Then to whom would their criticism belong? You could say it belonged to them. There's a story where a Brahmin comes to the Buddha and he's determined to show the Buddha up. He starts abusing him and criticizing him, and the Buddha remains completely serene and peaceful. And the Brahmin is so frustrated by this. He says, I have abused you and sworn at you, etc., and you sit there as if nothing happened, as if nothing untoward has been said. So the Buddha asks him, what would happen if you were to prepare a meal and invite guests to come? What if they came and did not eat the food? To whom would it belong? Well, it would belong to me, said the Brahmin. Precisely. So the Brahmin comes with these offerings of anger and violent speech, and the Buddha takes none of it, receives nothing. It's like nothing meeting nothing, emptiness meeting emptiness. So the Brahman is left with all this horrific anger, hatred, heat, rage, boiling in his own body. So who does it belong to? It's his poison and he has to eat it. This is the truth. Is such a beautiful example of how we can receive violence, any form of violence. 
Therefore, if we regard criticism as merit, the critics will become reliable friends. Why reliable? Do not hate those who slander you. How else can you manifest the unborn power of compassion? Because when we see people behaving this way, it's just like what Thomas said. We need to have compassion for those who commit acts of atrocity because they believe that by harming others, they will end their own suffering. But they don't. They just create greater suffering. So then we see that these beings can be the recipients of our great compassion. It takes greatness to bring up compassion in the face of violence, abuse, harmfulness, hatred. These people are our teachers because they show us where we are in our practice. I read this to you, but it's been, for me, in my life as a nun, especially living and running a project where I have to train other people. And as Ajahn Chah so skillfully pointed out, and it many times helped me to see my own shortcomings, my own limitations, when he said when he became an abbot, it was like a learning curve for him. He recognized that he was like a rubbish bin for other people's suffering ideas, projections, criticisms. I have used that so many times when I've received criticism, correction, and retort, and angry words, or even sarcasm, or even gestures, a face, resentment, because I have to train. Imagine trying to train people who have been successful in the world, or have raised children, or anybody, most of us think we know it all, and then somebody else comes along and tries to tell you what to do. Obedience is the most difficult practice of all. And that's basically what training requires. It's like a boot camp. And then when I receive that, I think of Ajahn Chah and the rubbish bin. But the difference is, that he said, be like a rubbish bin with a hole at the bottom of it. (laughs) And what I've noticed is my rubbish bin has not got a hole at the bottom. (laughs) But I'm working on it. That's the secret, is to let it go. Be like a rubbish bin with no bottom. So you can just keep receiving and using that as compost to fertilize the great compassion in the heart. Once in a while, I get it, but it takes so much practice. The people that come for training, I realize that they're my teachers. And I sometimes tell them that, but I try not to tell them that too often. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you do, don't shut off your pains. Accept your pain and remain vulnerable. However desperate you become, accept your pain as it is, because it is in fact trying to hand you 
a priceless gift, the chance of discovering through spiritual practice what lies behind sorrow. That reminds me of a line by Rumi, joy is hidden in sorrow. Yeah. And here is a confirmation of what I just spoke about. This is from Tukse Rinpoche. The great enemy to spiritual progress is the belief that you know already. Knowledge is unfolded. Pray to be willing at every stage to be ignorant so that you can really be taught. I noticed occasionally someone will come and be so desperate to be told, yes, you have reached this and this, you have attained that and that. Yes, you're sailing right along. They really want stripes, like grades, like we get in school, certification in the practice. Ajahn Chah was very reluctant to talk about attainments of any kind, discouraged it. Why is that? Because too easily we get caught up in creating that self, the self that is gathering points. That solidifies the idea of a being that is moving upward on the spiritual ladder, moving up the rungs. But that's not what this work is about at all. It's really about surrendering to the process and emptying oneself of any thoughts of a self. Devoting oneself to this work of purification for its own sake. The work is its own reward, not what we can gain from it. And that is to say that no one gets enlightened. No one. Because there's no one to get enlightened. How can a self get enlightened? But we can awaken to the truth. We can touch the place of sorrowlessness, of deathlessness, within this death-bound body-mind framework, structure, or composite. And it is just that, it's a composite. Like pixels on a screen. Somebody described, when they went to the optician, they were trying to describe how they could see pixels. And I said, don't tell your optician that, because they'll think you're mad. But it's true. As we break down, as we melt down our conceptual ways of seeing, everything starts to look like just a composite, because it is. It's just elements. This is a form realm, and we trust form so much. We ourselves are forms, made up of elements. So we believe that what we see is real. This is not what the trained mind sees. The trained mind sees elements coming together. Just like on a computer screen, if you zoom into any photograph, there's no image left. 
really we are just all organized pixels. We attribute beautiful qualities to certain forms and not to others. The process of waking up is to live without these kinds of preferences and to be equanimous in the face of pain and pleasure. From our perspective as trainees, we have to assume a completely humble perspective. We have to have an earthworm mentality, moving slowly along and always being amazed by the smallest discovery, not to be caught up in seeing from the perspective of a person, a solid being, who wants a particular attainment or result. So not to evaluate in terms of results, but just in terms of pure presence. No future, no past, no story, no history. Isn't it wonderful not to have a story? Everybody has a story. Is there anyone without a story? In olden times, when artists created beautiful temples and paintings and sculptures, you don't know who did it. Persopolis, the pyramids, all these incredible structures, who built them? We don't know. Thousands of hands went into them. There's no signature that makes it unique. This is so-and-so's work. But in our age, it's all signed. We so crave that stamp of immortality like a way of clinging to remembrance, to acknowledgement that this person existed and created this. But that's just a trap to somehow gain immortality. What is there to be immortal except the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element, the space element, consciousness element, or the mind element? And when death comes, all of these composite elements are blown apart. They're destroyed in the present form, sent back to their original state. Fire returns to fire. The energy of water unites with the energy of water. The earth, the dust, returns to the dust. The air, the oxygen, to the wind. And space is just absorbed into space. Ah, what happens to the mind element? This is the mystery. When we're fully purified, There's nothing left to go anywhere. And that's the mystery. That's the beauty. That nothing goes to nothing. The ultimate purity returns into itself, into that boundless nothingness. There is no suffering in that. Actually, The real non-suffering happens when we feel nothing. 
if there is karma, if there is unethical action, speech, or thought, then there is a residue in the mind. That residue creates the conditions for rebirth. There is the law of karma, of kama, which determines what kind of rebirth will result. But when the purification is complete, the mind element is purified, there's no more vibration there. We have to taste it ourselves. We know the result of tasting a moment of letting go, a moment of peace. What would it be like if we were to smile and joyously receive the criticism of an angry person? we would turn their anger into a flower. We would feel some beauty in that. How difficult it is to pull that off. But it's possible. And the possibility is our challenge. We know this is possible. We must raise the bar and go for that as much as we can. It's always possible to be kind. And the understanding, there's a wisdom there which is driving this karmic body-mind process. We have this faculty of wisdom. It's a faculty, it's an ability. But it isn't a self, it isn't a person. There is a freedom from being, from having to be or not be, or to be anything at all. And we can see that when we come to a little bit of peace in the heart and we're not clinging to anything, there's no suffering. We have a moment of being let out of prison. There's tremendous freedom in that. So the language of English, of nothingness, doesn't really convey it. Nibbana means the going out, the burning up. There's no more fuel to burn. So it's empty. There's an emptiness. Through the intuitive insight, these things will become apparent. It just takes a certain shift in perspective to really come to that. In the flood of impermanence that we experience as we stop to watch the mind It's only in the silence of the mind that we can begin to see properly and clearly. Otherwise, there's too much distraction, too much noise, too much self, too much clinging. But in the silence, we begin to get a taste of that emptiness, that boundlessness. And that will lead us on. Don't try to think your way through it. it, it's not rational. It's a wisdom that is intuitive. Have you ever heard of the mantra gate gate para gate para samgate bodhiswaha? Pure presence is transcending, ever transcending, transcending transcendence, transcending even the transcendence of transcendence. Now who can understand that? So Kobuchino Roshi was asked by a student, 
What does gate gate para gate parasam gate bodhiswaha mean? And the Roshi says, it doesn't mean anything. It means absolutely nothing. (laughs) Actually, it means everything is falling apart. There is nothing to hold on to. It means fall apart. (laughs) It means fall apart. Fall apart, all together, fall apart. We can't do anything about it. I think I'll stop there. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry.